Thank you very much indeed. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival on this first Monday of the festival. My name is Brian Morton, and uh, one of my more pleasant duties these days is writing about books for uh, the Sunday Herald. And uh, if you saw the paper yesterday, you'll have seen my review of a book called Wizard of the Crow, uh, a book which attempts to sum up Africa of the 20th century in the context of 2,000 years of world history. And the Sunday Herald gave me 1,000 words uh, in order to do that. So you'll see the scale of the, uh, of the, of the problem. It's a huge pleasure and a real privilege uh, to welcome to Edinburgh the author of that book, an author I have to say I've admired for 30 years and, and more. Welcome to Ngugi Wationgo. Thank you. And I should also welcome Sue, who's going to be signing uh, this and, uh, and some of the other events at the, uh, at the book festival. Which is quite a nice lead-in, I think, to the question of, of language, because there are, I suppose, two languages uh, involved in your, in your literary life. You've translated Wizard of the Crow yourself from Gikuyu to, to English. You started writing in English, though, didn't you? Yes, yeah. Uh, let me first of all start by, first of all, I'm, I'm really appreci I appreciate the fact that you, all of you are here, and I appreciate very much you are Thank you. not only the write-up you did, within a, a thousand awards, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but also you are conducting this. Uh, and I'm very glad to be in Edinburgh. Actually, I'm here with um, my wife, Jerry. I think she's over there. Yeah, you are good. Yeah. And, uh, and our two children, Mombi. Are you Mombi? <laughs> the one in red, you know. And Fiongo, the one sitting here. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they are important in my life, not only because they are my wife and my children, but also in terms of this particular novel. You know, they have been part of its uh, writing. Theon, I believe, was two years old when I started the novel, and Mumbi was three. By the time I finished the novel, they were, I think, both nine and ten. <laughs> So the first part of their life, you know, was really part, you know, part of the story of this particular novel, which I wrote, you know, first in the Koyo language, uh, starting from May 1997 to 2002, uh, writing and rewriting, revising, and then later, you know, translating it into uh, English language and preparing it for the press, you know. So all together, you know, I would say, you know, uh, is a narrative which has taken me ten years to put, you know, together in both the Koyo language and also in uh, in English. Yeah. Can, can sounds a slightly strange thing to do, but many people will not know what Gikuyu sounds like. I mean, can you can you give us a, just a sense of, of you know the the, the the cadence of the language? Yeah, actually, I I, I meant to bring a copy of the Koyo original with me so that I could read in a bit from the Koyo. And then in English, you know, but I didn't manage to get the bookshop, which had copies in London, <laughs> was actually uh, closed when I got there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, 
nei due anni che ne ho mono ne ho corso io con Scotland e quando che arriva ne ho da gara ar you know like the like the scores yes actually yeah so there are there are similarities somewhere yeah yeah thank you what does writing in Gikuyu allow you to do that writing in English didn't? That playing with the language, you know. Obviously, as a writer, every writer tries tries to play with the language, you know, whether you are writing in, in English or Gaelic, you know, or Kiswahili, you know. Uh, but since Gikuyu is my mother tongue, you know, uh, there's a way in which I can play with the um, with the music uh, of the language. A bit more freely than than I'm able to do uh, in English. Also, I come from a three-language situation. Uh, every Kenyan will have their mother tongue, either Gikoyo or Luo or Griyama or any of the forty African languages in Kenya. But uh, every Kenyan who has gone to school, or even who has not gone to school. Uh, we largely speak Kiswahili as well, you know, uh, and every Kenyan who has been to school will also obviously uh, have English, you know, since English is a language of schooling, is the, it is a language of uh, administration, is a, it is a language of parliament. So we have the advantage of having at least, you know, three, you mm. know, languages. And that actually comes into play. When I'm writing in Igekoyo, I can play around with uh, those three languages. I can play and with the levels of reg different registers in the Koyo language, especially since the Koyo language is, is tonal, I can play around with the, the far that a word, depending on how it is pronounced, can have different meanings. So a character could respond to one level of meaning and miss the other. And um, But I can also play with the fact that many educated Kenyans, even when speaking their mother tongue, they will literate with English, you know, uh, meaning that, you know, to get, and when I speak to with her, you know, uh, I might mix it, uh, and then I come back to English, you know. <laughs> that happens quite a lot. Uh, in the world today, actually, not only in, you know, uh, in Kenya, and then, of course, I can play around, you know, yeah. with the fact of Kiswahili. Yeah. In fact, I want to illustrate that use of, uh, not of tonality, but the use of um, uh, <coughs> different languages. Uh, it's not a section I had meant to start reading with, but since it's come naturally, mm. and I'm going to read a small section to illustrate what I mean by playing, not so much with the tonality this time as with uh, playing around with the fact that a speaker will be able to speak in Koyo and also Kiswahili. This is a section of the novel early on when uh, it has been announced uh, that in a, a big meeting uh, that uh, the ruler or the dictator here, you know, that the whole country is going to attempt to build for him um, uh, uh, a house or a, a tower that reaches heaven, 
you know, so that you know, each morning he and God can have a little conversation you know, before breakfast or after breakfast about the state of the country and so on. Um, and um, when this is announced, uh, you know, uh, the minister who announces this you know, from the microphone first of pauses dramatically to allow time for the ovation. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, except for uh, members of parliament, cabinet ministers, officials of the ruler's party, and the representatives of, of the armed forces, nobody actually clapped for this. They didn't get the ovation um, he wanted. And this is very embarrassing to the minister who is in charge of this scheme. So it has soliciting. Is there anybody in the audience who would like to, you know, who, you know, please, oh, and there's an old man in the audience, you know, who raises his hand, and the minister is very happy to get this old man, at least one person in the audience, want, want to say a word. Um, but the old man does not quite understand Kiswahili properly. He, he's old, you know. Um, so what we get here is uh, uh, his attempt to address the uh, the gathering. Uh, let me put on the glasses uh, as a uh, to pretend that I'm imitating the old man, but <laughs> really, <laughs> but really, it's for my own use. <laughs> So uh, he asked, does anybody want to speak? People stared at one another, another platform, in stony silence. The only hands raised were those of the ministers, members of parliament, and officials of the ruler's party. Uh, but the minister ignored them and appealed to the citizenry. Are you so overwhelmed by happiness that you are lost for words? Is there no one able to express his joy in words? A man raised his hand, and Machokali, Machokali is the minister, quickly beckoned him to come over to the microphone. The man, clearly advanced in years, leaned on a walking stick as he pushed through the crowd. Two police officers ran to him and helped him toward the microphone near the platform where, of course, the ruler is seated. Age was revered in Afraria, the fictional country setting of the novel, and the multitude waited for his words as if from an oracle. But when the old man began to speak, it was clear that he had difficulty in pronouncing Swahili words for the ruler, who should have been Mutukufu Raisi calling out instead Mutukutu Rahisi. Horrified at the rulers being called a cheap excellency, <laughs> one of the policemen quickly whispered in the old man's ear that the phrase was Mutukufu Raisi or Raisi Mutukufu, which confused him even more. Coughing and clearing his throat to steal himself, he called out into the microphone, Raisi Mukundu. Oh no, 
it is not cheap asshole. <laughs> the policeman whispered in the other ear, no, no, it is his holy mightiness, mutukufu mutakatifu, which did not help matters because the old man now said, with what the old man thought was confidence, mukundu takatifu, at the mention of his, his, his holy asshole, the multitude broke out in hilarious laughter, which made the old man forget what he had wanted to say. And he stuck religiously to the phrase, Rahis Mukundu, which made Machokali the minister quickly signal that he be removed from the microphone. The old man did not understand why he was not being allowed to speak. And as he was led back into the crowd, he let out a stream of Rahis Mukundu, Takatifu Mukundu, Mutukutu, any combination of cheap and holy assholes he thought might work, gesturing toward the ruler as if begging for his divine intervention. I suppose the other thing in Googie that is playful about the book, I mean, to use a terrible graduate school term is that it's intertextual. It, it makes reference to other oh. works of literature quite, quite prominently and quite early on in the book, which I thought was, was, was quite telling. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned at one point um, your own book, Devil on the Cross, but also things like Amos Tatula's Palm Wine Drinker, a sort of African classic, and novels by Bukia Mishita and things like that. So there's, there's a kind of literary playfulness in the book as well. Yeah, playfulness actually was very important, you know, in this particular narrative. You know, t the way I've been describing it is that the uh, a dictatorship of any kind, particularly post-colonial dictatorships, were almost like tragedy erected on comedy, or tragedy manifesti manifesting itself in comic, you know, uh, ways, you know, uh, and you there's no way you could really express this through uh, sort of grim language or the tone. You can't really, the story is grim, so you don't want a grim story, a grim tone in telling the story of grim, you know, realities, you know. So there's a playfulness, you know, uh, in language, you know, uh, and there's also playfulness in terms of, well, physical distortions, which I shall mm. illustrate in a moment, you know. Um, but also, in terms of the landscape of the novel, you know, the geography of the novel, you know, uh, the other, the, a part of it is set in India, you know, Chennai, you know, uh, uh, there are some sections, you know, uh, which take place in New York, you know, uh, there are few references to uh, London, Oxford Street, you know, uh, and Harrods and so on come into in, into play. Some reference to Caribbean. So there's a way the landscape of the novel, you know, uh, goes well beyond you know Africa to bring in you know uh, a kind of global uh, physical you know, um, dimension. And also literal references, you know, uh, the you've mentioned African classics, you know, but also Indian epics, you know, mm -hmm. play quite an important role. Yeah. In the novel, like the Mahabharata, oh, you know, uh, for instance, specifically mentioned and drawn, you know, uh, uh, upon Shakespeare comes into play, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, Robert Barnes doesn't quite, but <laughs> I should have known that I was coming to Edinburgh and yeah. inserted him. But so there is that kind of literally in sort of, you know, yeah. references, yeah. playfulness, you know. Uh, in fact, there's one section in the novel, I'm not going to read it now, but uh, where uh, two characters, the wizard himself, you know, uh, is talking about his education in India, and he confronts one of the tormentors, his tormentors, who, with whom he meet, with whom he meets in prison. And he's illustrating what he wants to tell him, but by a story taken from Mahabharata, you know. Uh, so he explains this, you know. Uh, and he talks about Mahabharata as being written in Sanskrit, one of the dead languages like, you know, Greek and uh, Latin and uh, uh, Sabia and uh, uh, Giz in Ethiopia. Now, the one of the characters, the one who is uh, being talked to, later thinks that the sorcerer is so powerful, he thinks that he has learned his sorcery from dead from the dead, because he takes dead languages to mean the language is spoken by the dead. <laughs> So he said, wow, I'm just bewitched now. I'm going to die. This, this guy has learned his witchcraft from the dead. <laughs> and he speaks dead languages, you know. Yeah. So I play around with those, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, and, and you play around too with, with gender, because the wizard has both a male and a female principle. There are, there are two, if you like, central characters. Yes, yeah, in actually... Yeah, there's a man and woman, you know, uh, again, I'll read a small section connected to people who are, in a, say, in a sense, they have the half of each other. It's like playing with the, uh, my better half, uh, yeah. like my better half, of, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So we are halves of each other, as it were. You know. So we're really one. You know, I play around with that quite a lot, you know, and uh, the Wizard of the Crow, is both man and woman actually played as a character by two people who are working mm. with you know with each other? Mm. Yeah, that's true. There's a, that kind of playfulness as well in terms of um, uh, agenda. Yeah. There is one other text that I wanted to to raise with you, um, which is a very important one in the in the whole Western tradition, but I guess a part of the tradition that at, at least at some point in your life you you renounced, and that's the Bible, because there is a moment when Kamiti and uh, Nayawira, oh, yeah, I, I apologize yes. for my pronunciation, well. find themselves in this um, pastoral, in inverted commas, landscape, but it's a despoiled landscape, oh. it's not Eden, it's a landscape that has been robbed mm. of its riches. Mm. Um, one looks in situations like that for a snake to appear, and the snakes have already appeared, plastic snakes mm, right, already appeared. Right. Mm -hmm. So are you playing with, with a, a biblical tradition in this as well. Yeah, there's also, you know, the Bible uh, has been very important in my life, particularly the area I come from in Kenya, you know, thanks to Scottish missionaries. <laughs> Land of, uh, we, we call it uh, the Church of Scotland Mission, which is now called Presbyterian Church. Yeah. You know, actually that was a uh, Scottish missions in my area yeah. I come from. And the Bible was the earliest text 
that I came into contact with in translation in Igekoyo language, you know, so the Bible has been very important. So I'm always playing with those images, you know, uh, from the, the, the Bible, you know, uh, not just snake, but other, you know, yeah. uh, the God of Eden itself, there's a sense in which there's a God of Eden which has been uh, infected by, you know, uh, industrial pollution and so on, because the question of the environment is also very important, you know, in the, um, in the novel. Now, I want to illustrate, I said earlier, t talking about playfulness of language, you know, uh, there's also a way in which I grew up, let me explain this, I, I went to school, I'm an English student, meaning that I studied English literature. This was and here, it was in Leeds, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Leeds, and Makera University College, and then Leeds, you know. In fact, I, you know, Leeds, and, oh yes, and by the way, when it, it was when I, I I'm connected to Scotland, let me just we'll, we'll have you, we'll have you nationalized. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, uh. not only that, uh, but my first, my Christian name, which I have now abandoned, was James, huh? <laughs> uh, King of Scotland, or yeah. King of, you know, remember, or... Bible. And when I, for some strange reason, when I was in Leeds, which is, as you know, is because of industrial suit and all that, you know, uh, it was a pleasure for me when once I went to Inverness, you know, and passed through Edinburgh. And Inverness then was a small, almost a village then, mm. you know, um, and it was just wonderful going to Inverness. But then I had to pass through Edinburgh, you know, and uh, so it's I'm connected to uh, uh, to Scotland. And I was saying English literature, which meant that our diet in the novel was the 19th century English novel, mm. you know, <coughs> with its very strict realism in terms of geography and social manners and so on, you know. But when you are trying to describe a post-colonial situation, where facts can be stranger than fiction, then you may find that there are limitations of uh, that kind of realism, particularly when it comes to time and uh, geography and physical attributes, you know. So I had recourse to uh, orality, the oral tale, where often the, uh, there's freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. There are no limitations of time and mm -hmm. space. You mentioned, for instance, Tutuola, mm -hmm. where in his stories, human beings talk to animals, animals can change into plants, and so on. There's greater fluidity, yep. both in terms of time and space, you know. So that's what I did, in also, uh, in terms of my characters, you know. I tried to have a few uh, distortions of the physical attributes of the um, characters and um, I want to oh, oh, if I can find it uh, before the section which I read is to this, you is this Machacali and oh yes why he talks yeah. about it, the, the distortion of the oh yes I got it yeah. Yeah. let me try and see what I can read how I can render this here this is a section where they are it's during the, the assembly where they are, are announcing the um, 
they're announcing this plan for what they call marching to heaven. Okay? Uh, and I'm just describing how they are seated on the platform. Okay? Next to the rulers, sat the minister for foreign affairs in the dark striped suit and a red tie with picture of the ruler, the emblem of the ruler's party. The story goes that Marcus used to be an honorary member of parliament. Then one day he flew to England where under the glare of publicity he entered a major London hospital not because he was ill but because he wanted to have his eyes enlarged to make them ferociously sharp or as he put in Kiswahili, Yawe Machokali, so that they would be able to spot the enemies of the ruler, no matter how far they are hiding places. Enlarged to the size of electric bulbs, his eyes were now the most prominent feature of his face, <laughs> dwarfing his nose, cheeks, and forehead. The ruler was so touched by his devotion and public expression of loyalty that even before the member of parliament returned home from England, the ruler had given him the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, an important cabinet post, so that Machokali would be his representative eye wherever, in whatever corner of the globe lay the ruler's interests. And so Machokali, ferocious eyes, he became, and later he even forgot the name given at his birth. To the left of the ruler sat another cabinet minister, the minister uh, of state in the ruler's office, dressed in a white silk suit, a red handkerchief in his breast pocket, and of course the party tie. He too had started as a not a particularly distinguished member of parliament, and he probably would have remained thus, except when he heard of the good fortune that had befallen Machokali, he decided to follow suit. He did not have much money, so he secretly sold his father's plot and borrowed the rest to buy himself a flight to France and a hospital bed in Paris, where he had his ears enlarged <laughs> <laughs> so that, as he also put it in a press conference statement, he would be able to hear better and therefore be private to the most private conversation between husband and wife, children and their parents, students and teachers, priests and their flock, psychiatrists and their pa patients, all in the service of the ruler. His ears were larger than rabbits and always primed to detect danger at any time and from any direction. His devotion did not go unnoticed and he was made Minister of State in charge of spying on the people. The secret police machine known as M5 was now under his direction. And so Silver Sikioku or Silver Big R Ears, he became, uh, and again, he abandoned his earlier names. And now, the success of the two Astor members of parliament was so uh, was ironically the beginning of their rivalry. Uh, one considered himself the ruler's eye and the other his ear. And, uh, you know, people, you know. Now, 
other members of parliament would have followed suit and had their bodies altered depending on what services they wanted to render the ruler <laughs> except for what befell Benjamin Mambo. As a young man, Mambo had failed to get into the army because he was small. But the fire for military life never died. And now with the new avenues of power opened by Macho Kale and Sikiyoku, he thought this his best chance to realize his dream. And he agonized over the best bodily change to, to hand him the, minister, the defense minister portfolio. He chose to have his tongue elongated so that in echoing the ruler's command, his words would reach every soldier in the country and his threats to his enemies before they could even reach the Afrilian borders. He first emulated Sikyoku and went to Paris. But there was misunderstanding about the required size and the tongue, like a dog's, now hung out way beyond his lips, <laughs> rendering speech impossible. <laughs> Machokali came to his aid by arranging for him to go to a clinic in Berlin for corrective surgery, where the lips were pulled and elongated to cover the tongue. <laughs> but even then, not completely, and the tongue protruded now just a little. But the ruler misread the significance and gave him the Ministry of Information. <laughs> this was not bad, and Mambo marked his elevation to a cabinet post by changing his forenames and called himself Big Ben, inspired by the clock at the British House of Parliament. So that his full name now was Big Ben Mambo. <laughs> This might sound a slightly odd thing to say, but one of the things that struck me about the book was how close, in some ways, it has stuck to mm. your origins, your, your first study of, of mm. uh, as you said, English realist literature. Now, those, those events, those transformations, mm. have, if you like, a, a rational, real-world explanation. Mm. Right. They don't, they don't self-transform into mm. uh, men with big ears and huge eyes and, and, and long tongues. It's done in a, it's done in a, a clinic. Um, it struck me very much that in the book, and this is another ghastly graduate school term, that cliched magical realism that people were very excited about 10, 15, 20 years ago is almost entirely absent from, from the book. There's one, there's one exception, one important exception, and that's the, the, the museum of arrested motion, a, a, a little pond of tears mm -hmm. above which all movement stops. But by and large, everything in the book has a kind of, in, in a very special sense of the word realistic foundation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. What even magic realism, particularly in African uh, orature or folk folkloric tradition, has really roots in reality. It's only, if you like, uh, is extension of the real beyond <laughs> the real. You know, uh, it's like if you are If you are walking, why not fly? Since actually, <laughs> flight is really an act of uh, walking. Mm. Or if you are, if you want to embody the movement of our minds, you know the way we can now in our own minds we can go 
within seconds go back to our own homes we can go to our past when we were born mm -hmm. we can quickly visit all the places we have been and we are still here in this hall and i'm sure all of us just now when i mentioned the word home several homes were cajured in our own minds you know um, so all we need to do then you want to reach all those places is embody that in the form say of a bird mm -hmm. you know eh? so the mind has been able to fly back in time it has been able to project uh, the future and so on so the magic really is extension in a sense of the uh, what is actually logically also mm -hmm. you know um, uh, possible uh, or rather at least embody a certain you know element of uh, truth in the uh, in the real mm. yeah now marching to heaven as you described is the ruler's monstrous folly this great sort of national monument his telephone to God it's also I suppose given what you were talking about earlier uh, a kind of Tower of Babel there's a, a biblical reference in that but we have to always also say that you know it is also a pile of skulls and its foundations are blood and shit it is it is founded in violence and repression violence, and that has yeah. that has touched your life as well hasn't it yeah yeah I'm going to mention that in a moment but let me come back a little bit to the question of uh, again uh, extending what is logic what's real you know for instance a dictator actually tends to see themselves in terms of God on earth you know uh, so actually it's logical then if you think about it to think of uh, a tower that reaches heaven since he sees him as God then actually you just extend that possibility to where he is a neighbor to, uh, to God and so on you know, uh, uh, but of course all that may be very funny but of the victims of that kind of you know uh, are real human beings you know and I myself, of course, have you know suffered you know uh, that through my years as a writer. I've been to prison, as you know, um, in 1977, for actually writing in the core language and working in community theatre, and writing the other novel, you know, uh, Petals of Blood, you know. But even more recently, after 22 years of being in exile, uh, my wife and I returned home that was in August actually uh, two years yeah two years ago we went back home and uh, as many of you may know uh, you know my wife and I were attacked by four armed you know uh, people armed with guns you know and uh, not only were we beaten in all sorts of ways you know uh, and humility in all sorts of ways, you know, but, you know, uh, my wife, you know, uh, was sexually, you know, assaulted, you know, during the uh, attack, you know, and everybody was meant to really crush us completely, you know, um, but even then, either during the attack or afterwards, we refused to succumb to that, you know, uh, we fought back as much as we could. My wife was traveling, even under how she was traveling with a gun, and uh, of one of the people. And really, we were meant to be eliminated, but we call it divine intervention, you know, which means as a result of that divine intervention, we are now here uh, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, you know, 
conversing um, yeah. with you. So we have, as a person and also as, as a family, we have suffered you know, uh, the consequences of that kind of um, uh, dictatorship. Because our attack, we believe, was politically organized by the same forces which for a long time uh, were opposed to what I stood for uh, in my writings or in my you know, uh, life. You know. And we believe that they are remnants you know, of that you know, dictatorship I was talking about. Yeah. Mm. I think the only possible follow-up to that is, is, is silence, but um, we do want to hear from uh, the audience who I'm sure have have questions. I'm terrible. Watches go haywire on me, so I never know what time it is. Fantastic. Um, we have lots of time for, for questions. There is a, a microphone um, which will be passed to you. Can I just say, if you put your hand up to ask a question and I don't take you first time, leave it up for a second or two and I'll come to you uh, after that. And I should also say that after the event, uh, Googie's going to be signing copies of Wizard of the Crow um, in the signing tent and it's left and left mm. again when you when you leave the, the theatre. Now anyone mm. like to ask a question? There's a lady right down at the front here who since she gave me the time deserves the first question. Um, forgive me for being very new to your work and it's maybe slight ingredients, I don't know. Um, but my understanding of your um, your seminal work, the decolonization of the mind, um, it's um, talking about how Oh, I'm here. Okay, Sorry, <laughs> you you refuse to write in English because that is um, that is dominating your your own spirit and your own um, creativity by writing out with your own language. But um, what then? Um, I can't remember your name. I'm sorry. You you mentioned that you actually started writing this book in English, and I was wondering why that happened. No, no. I think. Um Maybe yes, uh, maybe you uh, misunderstanding. Okay. He said a thing. I wrote the novel in a Gekoyo language. In fact, the novel, uh, which is now in six parts, uh, you know, although all the parts are been brought out together here, but in the Gekoyo version, original, uh, it's been brought out in four volumes, you know. And the first two volumes, uh, the first two books came out in one volume uh, in August uh, 2004. Uh, the other volume, volume three, came out in March this year. And uh, the, the last volume, uh, and the f that volume will come out, I think, later in September. But by December, the entire novel will have come out in the Korean language. So what we are having here is English translation, you know. And I told my publishers that they must put the most beautiful sentence in the novel is in the forward, which is a translation from the Koyo language. Yeah. You know, I wanted that very much because, as you know, many, and in Scotland, you probably know this, obviously, you know, uh, in many, in African countries, uh, many intellectuals, or rather all intellectuals, writers, you know, write in English or French or Portuguese, you know. 
and this is in a country where uh, the percentage of those who understand English or Portuguese within any one linguistic community is very tiny. So we are in a situation where the elite of Africa who have knowledge of agriculture, of medicine, of law, of administration, of business, at least modern business and so on, you know, uh, go to Edinburgh, to London, to universities in Africa, they acquire knowledge and we put that knowledge in English and um, Portuguese and French, you know. And my own argument has been over these many years that African intellectuals, African writers must use African languages primarily uh, to change the entire situation in Africa where we have come to privilege English to an extent that many African parents actually take pride in the fact that their children cannot speak their mother tongues, you know, from being a positive thing. Because having another language is a positive thing, you know. You know uh, so if you know Kikuyu and English and French and uh, Gaelic and so on, that's my is a beauty's power. But there's something of a colonial distortion when people come to acquire pride in not knowing their own <laughs> languages, you know. And my struggle has been a way of trying to reverse that, you know. And I'm hoping that a novel like um, Wizard of the Crow, you know, will go a long way towards, you know, uh, correcting that to show that a novel can be available in an African language and also be accessible to other language communities through translation. And that's why I was happy also when I heard you laughing at some of the sections eh, to show that the humor somehow or other mm -hmm. does carry over yeah. in English. Yeah. Any more questions though? There's a lady straight in front of me here and then we'll come to you sir. Just halfway up the aisle. Uh, thank you, Nagugi. I think that kind of leads into my question in a way. I'd just like to ask you to expand a bit on this. I think any writer has to have some kind of idea of who they're writing for, who the kind of primary audience or readership is. So from what you said, when you're writing, are you thinking primarily in terms of a, a Kenyan audience or an African audience? Because here, of course, you're speaking to a largely white European or Western audience, and, and there's kind of, kind of strange, you know, is, is there a, a, a dissonance for that in you? Um, and a sort of supplementary question part of that is, do you get this kind of opportunity in Africa to go and speak to people in other parts of Africa about the Africanism of what you're writing about? Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, two things. One, uh, of course, in Africa, let me start with the last part of the question, you know, uh, I do go to Africa quite a lot, and um, uh, fortunately, I do actually have a following <laughs> in Africa. Uh, for instance, a good example is when in 19, the year 2003, I went to give the fourth annual Biko lecture at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And I'm telling you, I mean, sort of the, you know, uh, 2,000 people 
from more than two that turned up. The hall was completely packed, so they had to provide you know closed circuit television outside, you know, uh, so that people could hear <laughs> what I had to say. Uh, I get the same kind of following, you know, when I go to Ghana, you know, uh, or Zimbabwe, you know. Uh, you know uh, when my wife and I returned to Kenya, just before we were attacked. Uh, we visited, you know, I gave talks in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and Makere in Uganda and every place, you know, uh, the crowd, it's like, I don't know how to describe it, it's really overwhelming, you know, uh, the way people turn up, you know. Do I feel awkward about discussing? I don't really do that. For instance, even when I'm teaching, like now I've been teaching at the uh, University of California, where I'm distinguished professor of English and comparative literature, and director of the International Center for Writing and Translation at the University of California, Irvine, uh, where, by the way, my wife also works as a director of faculty and counseling center. But I don't feel any awkwardness about that, you know, because I really do believe uh, when you look at the world, we are really connected. and. If we ex explore the element of connection, in essence, it does not really matter where one is, you know. Uh, because when I'm in Scotland, I like to look at things uh, with Scotland as the center of my universe by seeing how that center, which is Scottish Edinburgh, connects to other centers, you know, in the globe. When I'm in Kenya, I like to think of Nairobi or Limuru or the village I come from as also a center and seeing how that center is connected to other centers of the globe, you know. Uh, and so, so in the same way, when I'm in California, for reasons, you know, I try to see how Irvine, where, where now we live, is connected to uh, other parts of the, uh, of, the, of the globe. Because actually it's the colonialism and authoritarianism, which, uh, which tend to elevate certain centers as the only center, what for instance goes by the name of Eurocentrism, you know, which tend to look at the world as if Europe is the only center that matters, okay? Uh, but if you could look at Europe as one center among many other centers in the globe, you know, then this changes the equation, you know, altogether, you know, and nothing does not really matter where one is. Third, the fact that I now write in a Koyo language, you know, uh, has, uh, I guess, some other challenges of writing in a Koyo language uh, while also being prof distinguished professor of <laughs> English, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, in California. I get challenges of writing in Gikoyo language, you know, uh, when Gikoyo speaking communities are in Kenya, not in uh, London or in, or, or uh, Arvine and so on. It's a challenge of a different kind, you know. But I'm also interested in how far, how am I able to convey whether that Gikoyo based or African-based or Kenyan-based experience, you know, how far, you know, am I able to have that experience, you know, uh, transmitted 
to other cultures and so on. You know. I like people to read my novels, Holy Wizard of the Crow, and see themselves in it. You know. I like a Scottish reader to read Wizard of the Crow and not just see that esoteric country out there, but to see themselves in that you know, particular you know, uh, uh, narrative. That's my challenge you know, uh, mm. as a writer, whether I'm writing in Gekoyo, by the way, or in English. Yeah. There's someone right down at the front here. I guess continuing the theme of, of languages, there are many Englishes, but I want to ask you about the English into which you've translated the novel, which I guess inevitably will be your English, and as an author you, you influence what English is. You live in California, and um, initial contact with English was through Scots and, well, Brits in general. What, what, course, is, yeah. what is your English, or what is English? Uh, English is English, yeah. I don't actually, personally, I think uh, people speak different languages, of course, through their own linguist experiences, you know, for instance, you know, uh, a Scots person speaking English and so on, when you can hear the accent. When I speak uh, English, you know, you can hear my Koyo, you know, accent, uh, and so on, you know. Uh, and uh, so English for me is English. There may be variations or even different registers and so on, you know. Uh, but I don't actually, I, I've even seen some journals called Englishes. Say there's a Nigerian English, there is that. But this is the question of English language universalizing itself. Okay? Yeah. It's like English is saying, I'm now the universal language which has different variations. Uh, New Zealand, you know, Kenya, and so on, you know. What has my project have been to reject entirely? the universality of English language, you know. And I'm saying all languages, whether Nikoyo or Maori or Gujarati and so on, you know, can be also linguistic centers for understanding the world, you know. And what we need is elevate the practice and theory of translation so that uh, we can make visible through translation the genius in every language and culture yeah. as opposed to the present trend where we are losing so many languages and the knowledge is contained in those languages you know and I keep on wondering imagine if we had lost Greek mm -hmm. <laughs> and Latin because mm -hmm. we are spoken by in city states and so on how much we would have lost in terms of the knowledge that has survived, uh, you know, uh, to our press, you know, present and so on, you know. So I want to see really genuine multilingual environment in the world, but with genuine conversation through translation and other ways uh, between those languages and uh, cultures, you know. We are getting perilously short of time. There's another question down right at the front here. Oh, there's right there, sorry. <coughs> Thank you, Professor. Um, I am really privileged to be here today because um, I come from Kenya, and I think when I grew up, when I went to the university, 
was around the time you were having some, you know, the 70s, that kind of thing. Now, um, I'm really, really um, proud that you, uh, you write in your own language because uh, some of us who are uh, children of post-colonial period and, and seeing that um, I mean, everything that I've ever learned, I've learned in English, and everything that has ever been written has been written from an English uh, perspective by English-speaking uh, people from who don't actually know my culture. What I know about my culture has been you know, written by other people who don't have similar experiences as myself. And it's really like, I don't know people in, in this audience, I don't think they will have the same experience. Too. It's just recently I discovered that all I know, all my history, all my life, all I know is I've seen it through the eyes of, you know, the English, you know, the colonial, because that's, that's what my, my history is. And, it's, and I read books when I was young, and I enjoyed them. I enjoyed, you know, books and describing things I've never, ever known. I, I wouldn't even know what it meant, but yet I enjoyed them. So I think in, in writing in your own language and you know getting people to have experience your experience from your own eyes, and I hope other people do that as yeah. well. Right. Thank you very much. You know, that's uh, for me. I, to be very frank, I get uh, a lot of it's the best compliment, the best uh, music I hear when people like uh, Susan from Kenya they talk personally you know about those experiences you know or when I go to places like Tanzania or South Africa or Ghana and people tell me you know thank you very much for what you know you are saying you know about you know our languages and so on or when people tell me now after hearing you after thinking about translating some poems into my own mother tongue and so on you know from English and so on you know uh, because what I keep on telling them is that there's nothing wrong with English language English language and English literature contains a lot of knowledge and I don't have to even to worry about how English came to be there historically you know the fact that it is there and it's got all that knowledge in it and so on uh, we need it but not at the expense of other languages. And at the University of California, we are actually theorizing a lot about marginalized languages versus dominant languages. Uh, and we think that even in Europe, uh, language like Gaelic, Scottish Gaelic, you know, uh, Irish Gaelic, you know, are marginalized languages, you know, or languages spoken by the people in the north of Europe are marginalized languages. And we are saying there should be a way in which the marginalized languages become part of global conversation and through <coughs> translation this is possible. I fear that the dimming of the lights yeah. uh, is a sign that we are. Uh, I don't want you to go away just one second only. Very briefly. Yeah, very, very briefly. I won't let you go without thinking that the whole novel is just about distortion of bodies and so on. <laughs> I also show you the normality of, so I'm going to read a paragraph, actually, if you don't mind, um, where Kamete and Nyawera yeah. are walking through the forest. They have been conversing with their friends, but they were not aware that something else was happening to them. And it's only when 
uh, they find themselves suddenly without words and they resume their walk in silence that they feel they look at each other and they see a light in each other's eyes and at that moment they are aware of something else called love love was everywhere in the tree branches where the nests of weaver birds hung in the fern where the widow bird had left two long black tail feathers in the murmurings of the elderly river as it flowed eastward before turning into a roaring waterfall in the sun's rays which pierced through the waterfall splitting into the seven colors of the rainbow in the still waters of a small lake made by a river elders where Kamete and Nyawera now swam and bathed and chased each other, splashing water on each other. In the black jacks, the goosegrass and other plants, the flowers and seeds of which stuck to their uh, wet clothes. Yes, love was in the movement of porcupines and hedgehogs, in the wings of the helmeted and crested guinea fowls, francolins that scampered away after stealing glances at the couple, in the honeybees and butterflies hopping from flower to flower, in the cooing of doves, in the mating calls of the river frogs from among the reeds and water lilies. Love was there among the creeping plants that twined around the tree trunk, yes, in the blackberries, some of which they plucked and fed to each other. Love was there in the breeze that made the leaves sway ever so gently. Love was everywhere in this forest but neither Nyawera nor Kamete mentioned the word love. Can I just hold back your applause just for, my apologies, just for a half second. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Sue very much for, for signing. I'd like to say a very special thanks to uh, a brave and wonderful woman and a beautiful family over here. Uh, and special thanks today to Ngugi Wationgo. Thank you very much indeed.